Good morning. You can uh, go ahead and stay standing. We're going to read the first part of our uh, passage this morning in John chapter 8. Let's stay standing for the first part of our reading today. In John 8, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to John 8, verse 30. Actually, start in verse 30. We're going to be preaching through 31 through 59. So let's hear God's word for us this morning. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. You can go ahead and take your seat. Let's go to the Lord this morning together to ask him for help. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for showing us that you have come to set us free. So, Lord, we know that I cannot explain this without your help. No one here can hear it without your help. So we ask for your Spirit's presence and help today as we hear from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a story written in the uh, 1880s uh, called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. More people might know it by the movie that came out uh, more recently. Uh, but the story follows this young man named Judah Ben-Hur. Uh, he's a very wealthy uh, Jewish prince. He's got a lot of money. He's kind of a merchant, uh, well-off, uh, living in the first century. So if I were to stop right now in the story and ask you, would you want to, if you had to live in the first century, so... You know, if you had to give up dentistry and wanted to live in the first century, would you want to be Judah Ben-Hur? From what you know right now, the answer is probably, yeah, that wouldn't be too bad. All right, the story goes on. Ben-Hur lived in the Roman Empire. He was accused by his childhood best friend of attempting to murder a Roman governor. He didn't do it, and his friend actually knows that. Uh, But Ben-Hur is arrested, he's imprisoned, and he's made a slave. Puts to work on a a Roman warship, nothing of his own except his own thoughts. Uh, for three years, every day, he's working on this ship, rowing as a slave. Very little rest, horrible food, just rowing and rowing and rowing for years. So if I were to ask you that same question, would you like to be Judah Ben-Hur? Your answer would probably be, at this point, no, absolutely not. Well, the story continues again. In an odd turn of fate, Ben-Hur's ship is damaged in war and begins to sink. And as, as it's sinking, uh, Ben-Hur rescues this, uh, this Roman uh, captain, I believe. I'm not remembering, but I believe it was the captain. The two of them survive by floating on these pieces of the ship. And this becomes the turning point of Ben-Hur's life. Because uh, the man that he saves decides to adopt him, set him free from his slavery. And eventually, that man dies and Ben-Hur becomes his heir. There's a lot more to the story, 
But we'll stop there. Now, if, if I were to ask you at the end of all that, would you want to be Ben-Hur at that point? You might not be sure about the three years, but at least at the end, the answer would probably be yes. Yes, you would. But wherever I asked you that question, would you want to be Ben-Hur, it would depend on where in the story you're at. The reason is because, obviously, no one wants to be a slave. If I were to ask you that question again, after Ben-Hur had been set free and an heir to these riches of his father's household, your answer would likely change. As you heard just a moment ago when we read the first part of our passage, Jesus begins this part of John with this, this riveting statement. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What Jesus is saying here is the only way to have true, real, lasting freedom that will last for eternity is by following him, by being one of his disciples it's my hope this morning as we go through this passage that, that we would all recognize that Jesus came to set you free from your sin. We're going to break the passage into three sections, three different points. I'll list them for us. First, your sin is worse than you realize. Second, the devil is lying to you about your sin. And finally, the great I am has come to rescue you. Here they are again. Your sin is worse than you realize. The devil is lying to you about your sin. The great I am has come to rescue you. So let's begin with that first point. Your sin is worse than you realize. Now, just as a quick refresher, uh, we've been at the Feast of Booze for a while now. If you've been here with us, uh, we're still there. We're still in the Feast of Booze. Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and he's continuing to talk to these Jews who last week heard him say... Uh, that he is the light of the world. And if you recall, uh, last week it seemed like there might have been some good news. Right? At the end of verse 30, which I'm just realizing I didn't read at the beginning there, sorry. Hopefully it was up there. But at the beginning, uh, at the end of last week's uh, passage, verse 30, it says that many believed in him. Many believed in him, which seemed on its face to be good news. Uh, but Jesus keeps talking to these Jews who believed in him. And now he's going to explain to them how do you become a real disciple of Jesus? How do you do it? If you abide in my word, Jesus says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now that word abide kind of means to remain, stick around. It kind of has this sense of ongoing presence. In other words, just hearing Jesus and liking what he said, or maybe kind of liking how he said things in the temple, that's not enough. That's not going to cut it to be one of Jesus' disciples. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to stick around. You have to stick with him. You have to keep marinating on his words, and you have to listen to everything he has to say. I think the last time I watched a full Cubs game on TV was in 2016. So if I were to claim to be a fan of the Cubs, I know that there are people who would would, uh, take offense at that. There's terms for fans like me, fair-weather fan. I haven't stuck with them. I have not watched any of their losing seasons. I don't have any clue what's going on in their farm system. And so consequently, when the Cubs won the World Series, my joy was, you know, tepid at best. And to be a true disciple of Jesus, it can't just be a passing fad. I did not abide with the Cubs. And in a much more serious way, to be a true disciple of Jesus, you must abide with him, to stick with him, to listen to his word. Now, you would think, if this crowd had just heard what Jesus had to say last week, and they believed him, they wanted it to be true, 
then they should be excited when Jesus says, okay, you want to know how to actually be one of my disciples? Here's how you do it. They should be excited. That wasn't the case. There's something kind of fickle about their faith, as one commentator put it. Like the parable of the sower, the seed of the faith uh, in their hearts springs up quickly, very quickly in this case. But as soon as Jesus' teaching gets hard, and in this case specifically, as soon as Jesus' teaching begins to touch on their sin, that's when they start pushing back. Now it's one thing to really like Jesus' teachings. It's one thing to believe even that he may be divine. But at some point, if you stick around long enough to know what Jesus has to say about you, you're going to realize that Jesus has some pretty serious things to say about your sin. In fact, he's going to call you a wretched sinner. Not in those words, but that's what he'll mean. And that you're headed for hell without his help. And that's where a real test comes. You'll find out if you really believe that Jesus is God. If you do believe that Jesus is God, then whatever this man says, you're going to believe it because he is God. But if not... When he starts to point out your sin, that may be where you start to realize there's something in your heart that does not actually believe that this man is God. Let's keep going. The Jews respond to Jesus' words that the truth will set them free by kind of explaining to him in verse 33, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, first, you can kind of hear some snideness dropping off of these words, right? Jesus does not need them to explain to him that they are the offspring of Abraham. But second, if you know your history, uh, the Jews had managed to be enslaved by almost every major power in the Near East. So it's a little odd that they're saying we've never been enslaved to anyone. Uh, what they're probably talking about, uh, so in the Roman Empire, there's, slavery was common, uh, and it was, uh, it was a terrible, it was, it was awful, it was it's property. Slaves were property of their masters. They had to do whatever their masters wanted them to do. These Jews were probably thinking that, right? They were probably thinking, we're not, uh, we're not property. We're not, we're not slaves of any Roman masters. Um, but that is not the kind of slavery that Jesus is talking about. So Jesus responds in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus is talking about a different kind of slavery here. He's talking about slavery to sin. This is important. Some of us might have a similar response to the Jews. If Jesus told us that he would set us free, you might be tempted to think or maybe feel, maybe not think this, but feel it. I'm not really sure that I need that. But Jesus is pointing out something very important If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to understand these two things. Jesus came to earth to set you free from your sin, and your own sin is very, very bad. If you don't recognize one of those two things or either of them, your response to Jesus is essentially going to be, I'm not really sure that I need you. So Jesus is going to put this in the strongest and starkest terms possible that human beings can understand. Without Jesus, you are a slave to your sin. It is, it's not easy to talk about slavery in the United States. It's awful. Our country was home to one of the most wicked displays of slavery that was based on the most horrible form of racism. 
And we know those wounds are not healed in our country. But what Jesus says here, the wickedness of the institution that we remember, does underscore the point that Jesus is trying to make. Without Jesus, you are enslaved by your sin. And if you want to understand Jesus, you want to understand his teaching, you want to understand why he had to die, you want to understand the power of his resurrection for you, then you have to understand that your sin is much, much worse than we realize. Now, for some of you, you might have a sense of what Jesus is talking about here, right? You might feel as though you are in bondage to your sin. You hate how it may control different parts of your life. You hate how it can control your thoughts, it can control your feelings, things that you say to people. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment, for all of us, what, what would it like, be like to be truly free of sin, Some of you might have your defenses up right now saying none of us can be perfect until we reach heaven. You're right. That is correct. But I still want us to imagine it for a moment. What would it be like to live right now totally free of sin, right? Pride would never cause you to be a little put off or offended or hurt by something a dinner guest said to you. Uh, You'd never need to feel the need to kind of slightly exaggerate things to your boss, make yourself look a little better, or slightly play down what you did or didn't do for the same reason. You never feel the guilt or shame of knowing that you may have stumbled in some way, perhaps in your fight for purity, perhaps in something else. Knowing or terrified of the fact that someone might know that you struggle about these things. You'd never feel the tug of greed in your heart. You could be totally open, totally honest, totally transparent with everyone all the time. No sense of shame at all. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? Jesus is saying here, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's no other person or being who can do this, who can truly set you free from your sin. That's what Jesus is claiming here that he can do. That's what he's claiming he's come to do. And more than that, all those sins that I just listed, those are more than just annoyances, like a kind of like a pet dog that you have to keep a close grip on. It's not what sin is. Without Jesus, those sins that I just mentioned, others that you know of, you are not in control of them. Without Jesus, they are in control of you. You're enslaved to your sin. We're going to return to this in just a moment, what it means to be truly set free from sin. I want us to move on to our second point now. The devil is lying to you about your sin. So let's keep reading. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And we're starting to kind of go in circles here. The Jews are sounding like they're agitated. Right, Jesus, Abraham really is our father. Um, Jesus' reply is interesting. He says that if they were truly Abraham's children, they would be doing the works that Abraham did rather than trying to kill him, which is a little curious. My, my dad writes mortgages for a living, and no one claims I'm not his son because I don't do that. So Jesus is clearly talking about something other than genetics when he's talking about Abraham. All right, so let's keep going. Verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God and hears the words of God, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Can really feel the tension growing here. <laughs> that comment about uh, sex being born out of sexual immorality feels a little out field. Excuse me, a little out of left field. Some commentators think that that was because uh, they were kind of making a dig at the fact that Jesus's uh, birth story with Mary was a little odd. Right, that Jesus was conceived before Mary and Joseph were born. But either way, it could be. It could be. It would line up with the attitudes they have towards Jesus. But either way, what they're doing here is really important to recognize. Jesus has just exposed their sin. He's just exposed that they're trying to murder him. They're trying to kill him. Right? He's showing them, this is your sin. You're trying to kill me. One aspect of their sin. And this is their response. <laughs> they're trying to justify themselves by pointing at the fact that they're Israelites, that they're Abraham's children, that they're God's chosen people. Which is very interesting. Their response to Jesus isn't yes, <laughs> Yeah, that was wrong that we were wanting to kill you. Please forgive us. They keep going back to this idea that Abraham is their father. And Jesus is showing them that they should take no comfort in that. Because Abraham being their genetic father will not help them at all be freed from their sin. But they're ignoring this gracious gift from Jesus. When, they're, when Jesus is graciously exposing the areas of their sin, they're choosing the path of self-justification by looking inwards instead of looking outward for help. And that's the work of the devil. That is the work of the devil right there. I think when we think about demonic activity, uh, it tends to be stuff that's kind of dark and evil and horror, kind of horror movie stuff. Jesus is saying demonic activity isn't just that. It hides behind attitudes that are very, very common. Because one of the devil's great tricks, one of his great lies, is when we see that we've sinned in some way, he wants us to do two things. He wants us to look outward for the cause of the problem, and he wants us to, um, yeah, yeah, outward for the cause of the problem, and he wants us to look inward for the solution. All right? He wants us to be in the habit of believing that the solution to the problem of sin is somewhere inside of us. All right, there's a lot of messages around us uh, that, that claim that the only way to live truly at peace in the world is to kind of find peace with yourself, right? If, if we can kind of get under the layers of our psyches and the ways that we've been hurt, then we're going to find something good and pure and lovable somewhere down deep inside of us. That's where true peace can come from. That's kind of the secular version of this lie. But there's a religious version of this lie. <laughs> it's probably more of a danger for many of us in this room. There's a religious mindset that's really good at looking internally for solutions to sin. And that's what Jesus is speaking to here. These are religious Jews. They've probably spent a lot of time at synagogue or at the temple. 
And these are people who are justifying themselves by saying, we are Abraham's children. God is our father. That's how they respond to this attempted murder charge. When you realize that you've sinned, you've had someone point out sin in your life, what is your immediate natural response? Often it's to kind of explain ourselves, justify ourselves, explain the outside factors that caused us to do what we did, maybe ignore it, trying to think about it too much. But if that doesn't work, then often a step we can take is we begin to try to soothe ourselves by things that we've done. Right? Ways that we've acted, someone that we've served recently, maybe comparing our sin to someone else's to make it seem not all that bad. All of these are kind of avoidance tactics. Right? They're all either looking outward for the cause of sin or inward to try to convince ourselves that either we've done things that make us not as bad as we realize we may be, or that we aren't as bad as we may, as we think we may be. And whether it's the secular response or the religious response to the sin being exposed, the goal is the same. And this is how Satan is such a good liar. He wants to convince you that you're really okay. That without Jesus, you're okay. Your sin's not that bad. If you look deep enough into who you are, you're going to find something good there. And the problem is that lie will destroy you. Satan's a liar. Jesus made that really clear. Verse 44, he wants you to ignore what Jesus is saying here. He wants you to be on this path of self-justification because anyone who functionally believes that they can justify themselves, they don't really need Jesus. That's the result. And that means that you are part of the devil's kingdom. He's their father, as Jesus says in verse 44. So, how do we know if we're doing this? How do we know if we're taking this path of self-justification? If Satan is lying... And Satan's a good liar. How do we know that this is the case? Jesus gives us some ways to diagnose this. Look with me in verse 42. Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Then down to verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you can't bear to hear my word. And verse 45. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So if you, you might begin to see the pattern here. When you hear or read Jesus' words, what's your sense? What's your sense there? You sense that you need him? Do <laughs> you feel a love for what Jesus is offering to you, or do you feel kind of indifferent? Indifferent to Jesus. Are you willing to hear your sin is terrible, and that if you don't know Jesus, you are so thoroughly broken and wayward that your father is the devil? Do you believe what Jesus is saying here? If you don't believe him, then you aren't going to love what he's offering because you won't think you need it. You aren't going to listen when he says you're a sinner. You ultimately aren't going to believe in him. And that is how the devil keeps you trapped in your sin. But even if you do believe those things, even if you do believe in Jesus, you sense that you do have a love for what he offers you, I sense that none of us would really be able to pass that test that I just listed. None of us is going to love Jesus the way that we ought to. None of us will manage to fully and finally stop trying to justify ourselves while we're alive. And even if we did, that would kind of become its own form of works righteousness, wouldn't it? Like, look, Jesus, I did it. I stopped justifying myself. So what do we do with this? 
Even though we know Satan is lying to us about our sin, we still believe that lie sometimes. So what do we do? That's where I want us to move on to our last point. The great I am has come to rescue you. Let's read verses 48 to 59 together. Jesus answered him, Are we not right in saying, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's powerful. This is getting exhausting with these Jews' responses to Jesus. Isn't it? We're kind of back to name-calling like they did in chapter 7. They're calling him a demon again. But now they're calling him a Samaritan too. <laughs> and as we have heard many times during this, passage, or this, uh, this series, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. So that was definitely an insult. Um, and what's striking here is just how angry they are. They're so angry, you can kind of feel this tension rising all through this passage. It reaches its height here. They're furious at Jesus. They're furious at him for calling out their sin. They're furious at him for questioning their freedom. They're furious at him for questioning their place as Abraham's children. Back and forth they go until finally Jesus tells them that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And they kind of sputter back at him. Who do you think you are? You're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus tells them, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Now, imagine what these Jews must have been thinking or saying at that moment. What are you saying, Jesus? I am what? I am the light of the world. I'm the prophet Moses. I finished the sentence, Jesus. But they knew. They knew what Jesus was saying. Because they would have remembered, as Pastor Eric began our service with, that moment when, when Moses stood with bare feet on the dirt and brush, hiding his face from a bush that was on fire, and asked God, what do I say when your people ask who sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What followed that moment with the burning bush 
was the second greatest rescue in salvation history. Rescuing, God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, sending a man to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And the greatest rescue was coming soon. Jesus keeps hinting at it, right? Verse 42, the Father sent him. The Father sent Jesus to rescue his people from slavery, not from Pharaoh this time. This time he came for the real slave master. He came to rescue his people from sin and the devil. But sin is an infinitely more powerful master than Pharaoh. Pharaoh enslaved over a million Israelites. Sin has enslaved every human being who has ever been born with one exception. To rescue his people from that master, the great I am had to come himself. Moses could not do it. Abraham couldn't do it. This had to be God himself that came. The eternal son of God, as a son of man, because God was willing himself to pay our ransom. When you were a slave to your sin, the devil could, when you were still a slave to your sin, the devil could play this kind of double trick. On one hand, he lies to you, says your sin's not that bad. You don't need to worry as much about it. You're fine. But on the other, (laughs) we know that he can rightly accuse you before God. Revelation 12.10 says that the devil, Satan, is the accuser of the brothers and sisters in Christ, which means he can say to God, essentially, by your rules, God, these people have to pay for their rebellion. They have to pay for their sin and pay the penalty of eternal damnation. He wants to take you with him into hell. So he's going to lie. And he's going to do whatever he can to make you avoid dealing with your sin or recognizing it for what it is. But this is how the Son of God sets us free. He paid that penalty for your sin if you believe in him. If you are a follower of Jesus, when the devil makes that accusation against you, it doesn't have any more power. There's no more power against you because God has paid the ransom. Your God died instead of you. He ransomed you. He rescued you. As Jesus himself says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. Jesus came to set you free from your sin. That's how he did it, by dying as our ransom. This was the only man who who lived who could justify himself by his actions. And he gives us justification by dying for us. The only one who had any real righteousness of his own gave us his righteousness so that we could be righteous before God despite our sinful, self-justifying behavior. This is what God does. If you know him, this is what your God does. He rescues sinners from slavery. Gives us his own righteousness when we have none of our own. This was the day that Abraham saw when he rejoiced. When God promised him, Genesis 12, that through his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And you probably noticed earlier that Jesus told his listeners that if they were truly Abraham's children, they would be doing Abraham's works. That was back in verse 39. Abraham did a lot of things, but the most important, Genesis 15, 6, was that Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And that is still the case for us today. There's no righteousness of our own that we can count on. But for those who believe in Jesus, it is counted, his righteousness is counted to you as your own. 
This passage is all about freedom from sin. As we close, I want to talk briefly to those here, uh, to a few different thoughts here, a few different people who may be hearing this in specific ways. First, I want to talk to those who are Christians here and feel as though they may still be slaves to their sin. And maybe that you've kind of, at some point, given your life to Christ and you feel as though you are still stuck in some kind of sin. And we often think of categories of, of addiction or who knows with this kind of thing. But there are all sorts of sins that may have us stuck. Sins of pride or gossip or anger and many more that can be just as enslaving. And so you might be thinking, this promise of Jesus is just doesn't feel true to me. It doesn't feel right because I can't stop sinning. Philippians 1.6 says this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a couple things to take from that. One, the aspects of the good work Jesus begins in us is sanctification. He is sanctifying you if you are his, if you have believed in Jesus. He is doing the work of sanctification in you. And from what we can see in that verse, that work of sanctification will not be complete until the final day when Jesus returns or until death takes you. You won't fully escape your sin before that time. No one has. Not Paul, not any of us. But as time goes on, bit by bit, the Lord does help us grow and become more and more like Jesus, less and less dependent on sin. But that's a long process. It's a lifelong process. But more importantly, what matters most, if you feel that you are still stuck in your sin, what matters most is that Satan's accusations about you, if you are a Christian, do not have any power left. Your ransom was paid. You are free from eternal punishment that cannot be changed. And while our earthly struggles with sin can feel discouraging, they will pale in comparison to an eternity spent with God. So I hope you're not discouraged. Don't be discouraged. We want to walk by the Spirit and fight sin, but don't let the discouragement of that fight make you question Jesus' promise and the truth of what he has done for you. Now Jesus is presenting us with two different paths here at the end of this. You can be like the crowd, or you can be like Abraham. All it has to do with, it has, it has to do with, it all has to do with what you believe about Jesus, his true identity. When the crowd encounters the living God, they have their sin exposed, their faulty thinking corrected, and they respond with anger, justifying themselves because they don't believe him. So much anger, they try to stone Jesus because they don't want to listen to him anymore. Now, you can't stone Jesus. But the ways that people silence him today are by closing their Bibles, leaving church, building a wall of self-righteousness so tall you never have to look your sin in the face. That's one path. Or you can be like Abraham. From Abraham's story, it's pretty clear God did not call an inherently righteous man. We know that. But Abraham believed God, even when God made promises that seemed ridiculous at the time. He believed that God was the one true God. And he believed that his promises were firm and true. Jesus promises that he can rescue you from your sin. He can set you free. And one day you will know what it is like to have eternal life, to live free from sin, if you follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Let's pray. Father, earlier in John, you tell us that the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
You tell us that your own people did not receive you. But you also tell us that to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, you gave the right to become children of God. Father, we want to be your children. And Jesus, we're left in awe by what you did to make that possible, that you came willingly not to glorify yourself, but to give your life as a ransom for us so that we could be set free and brought into the household of God. If there are those here, Father, who are not free, we ask, I ask that you would set them free today from their sin. If there are those here discouraged by their sin, Father, please remind them of what is eternally true about them, that Jesus has conquered sin, that he's going to finish what he started in them, that Satan's lies and accusations no longer have any power over them, that you've claimed them for eternity, that there will be a day when we are no longer struggling against sin. For all of us, Father, we ask that this, this freedom that you've given would be a reality that we both know and live in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.